This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company this Thursday afternoon as South Australia starts to thaw out. I'm Cassie Huff. We'll have more on the weather soon. Also, uh, the plan to deal with carp in the Murray-Darling Basin has been delayed many, many, many times, but it has finally been released. So I'll bring you some details on that soon. Also, when the dog fence was funded a couple of years ago, I don't think people expected there to be so much wet weather in the north of South Australia. Things have come to a halt because of the weather, and this will be the 12th time, I think, uh, that this, a rain event has, has brought work on the fence to a standstill. I'll have an update on how the dog fence is going. But first today, the state government has introduced an amendment to the Livestock Act to increase PERS's powers in the event of an emergency animal disease incursion, such as foot and mouth disease. This is going to include measures like stop work and uh, perhaps or a close of place to minimise a biosecurity risk or impact. Now, foot and mouth might have fallen out of the headlines, but there is still a lot of work taking place, not just these changes to the Livestock Act, but also the physical measures at the airport. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven was actually at the airport this morning looking over some of these measures. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So you've been at the airport this morning. What have you been looking at? So I was there with our representatives also from the livestock industry and primary producers more broadly, looking at the measures that are in place uh, for biosecurity, which of course have increased. As you said, um, it's fallen out of headlines a little bit, but the work has still been continuing at pace. So it was really good to see the sorts of things that are happening at the Adelaide Airport, and that includes things like uh, seeing the detector dog, Extra, who, who I saw when uh, he first arrived here in Adelaide, inspecting luggage of people coming off of uh, specific international flights, looking at the foot mats that are being used, citric acid foot mats uh, for disinfectants of, uh, of footwear, uh, as well as the areas where you know, shoes and other items are actually washed and, and cleaned uh, if people have come in with, you know, with dirty clothing or dirty footwear, uh, as well as listening to the sorts of messages that are going out. Uh, so that includes messages on the planes and the messages that are being played within the airport on a, a frequent basis as well. So there's a whole range of steps that are in place uh, and it was certainly very good to see firsthand how they are operating. Beyond the physical measures that you saw today, the government has also introduced uh, the Livestock Amendment Bill into Parliament this week to uh, build the state's preparedness for an emergency animal disease incursion as well. What is in this amendment to the Livestock Act? Yeah, so this is what I'm introducing today uh, and some really quite important provisions. Uh, I was surprised to find that, for example, if there's an incursion of a disease... Currently, uh, although PERSA can instruct a landholder to uh, to take certain ac- action, they can't enforce that in a timely way. So if uh, someone's told that they must, for example, uh, destroy some stock, but they don't do that in a timely way, uh, in many ways PERSA's hands are tied. They can put a, a fine in place, but what we actually want, of course, is to address the behaviour. So what the amendments will mean is that there can be a time frame put on it. So, for example, you must destroy the stock in the next 12 hours. Uh, and then if that's not done, the inspectors or other authorised persons can then actually take that action. So that's, that's really important. It's something I think probably most people are not aware of. 
And the second thing is also really important, which is if there is a, a declaration of a period of increased risk. So this is where we don't necessarily know that a disease is present here, but we know that for some particular reason there's a hugely increased risk then also uh, the, an inspector will be able to go onto a property, undertake testing uh, or examination of livestock or similar to determine whether the disease is in South Australia. It can also be used to meet requirements of trading partners. Now, that's a very limited power in the sense that, you know, it's not just going to be there, holders, bolus uh, at any time. There has to be a specific declaration of uh, a significantly increased risk. But I think it's also a very important one because we don't want to just be looking at responses. If there is an incursion, what we want to be doing is everything we can to make sure that uh, an incursion either doesn't occur or if it does, that it doesn't get more widely spread. We did see in the aftermath of, of the COVID situation that the health minister did have significant powers that perhaps people weren't aware of. How will you ensure that, that these powers that you are giving to, to PERSA will actually still be measured and, and done in a way that, that doesn't overreach? Yeah, I think that's a really important point and that's you know, why we've been very careful in terms of drafting these changes. So, for example, with the, uh, the ability to go onto a property when there's a period, a declaration of increased risk, that's limited to only 14 days. Any extensions after that have to be approved by the governor. So that's, that's I think, a, an appropriate limit to that power. And uh, similarly, in terms of the additional uh, actions for, uh, for someone to respond in a timely way, I don't think there's going to be a lot of opposition to that. People know that if we had, you know, for example, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease, Acting swiftly is absolutely crucial. You've introduced this bill in November. Will this actually make it through Parliament before it ends for the year? Should there be potentially an outbreak or an incursion over summer when Parliament isn't sitting? Yeah, certainly my hope is that it will get passed through both houses uh, before the end of the sitting year. Um, we're obviously going to be briefing the opposition and the crossbench uh, about these proposed amendments. But I think given that industry is very much on side with them, I would hope that the passage through Parliament will be smooth. When do you expect it will be voted on? So it will be voted on in the upper house in uh, the next sitting week, which is in two weeks' time, uh, and then can move to the lower house if it's passed. This is an amendment to the Livestock Act, but the Biosecurity Act is also being worked on. How will these two work together? Yeah, so we needed to make some some changes immediately so that we could respond swiftly in the event of an outbreak of uh, one of these diseases, which is why uh, we're making changes through the Livestock Act. These sorts of changes will be reflected in the Draft Biosecurity Act, which we're still working on. But knowing that that act will take some time because we want to make sure that we do get it right, uh, we want to make sure that everyone who should be consulted on it uh, is consulted because the Potential changes in the Biosecurity Act, uh, or new Biosecurity Act, I should say, are quite considerable. That, that will take a lot more time. So this is about being agile and being able to respond quickly. And so we're able to make um, these proposed changes to the Livestock Act in the interim. Well, we'll have more to talk about when those votes do occur. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Prime Minister's Minister Claire Scriven speaking there. Livestock SA was consulted on some of these changes to get their take on it. CEO Travis Tobin joins me. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. How are you going? I'm well, thanks. So what are the main measures that you want to see in place as a part of these amendments to the Livestock Act? Yeah, we uh, we actually talked with the Minister about this very early August um, and uh, you know, just the importance of being able to not be, to act in a way that not hindered. So, 
obviously, um, you know, our industry fortunately hasn't had to deal with uh, emergency animal diseases of the sort of scale of the risk potentially that um, lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease pose. So it was really just making sure that were that to happen, the provisions would be there to act quickly and effectively to, um, uh, you know, to strengthen whatever needed to be done in the response of an event or a detection or an outbreak. So, um, yeah, and it's important that it is only relating to an emergency animal disease. It's not changes to um, just ordinary operation of the Livestock Act. What are some of the, the big changes that are now possible as part of this act? Should it, this, this, these amendments, should they get passed? Oh, so, so I think some of the, the things that you probably wouldn't think about that were sort of important to tidy up were it, it basically enables the Livestock Act to take precedence over inconsistencies with other acts. So, and that's just a timeliness of review thing uh, to a large extent. Uh, but also upgrading things like penalties were, were really low if people weren't complying with um, instruction around, uh, you know, things we needed to do to make sure we could contain and then eradicate quickly. And we've seen that same approach happen in, in federal legis- legislation uh, where penalties around non-compliance with trying to uh, identify and then contain certain things related to exotic disease have been increased significantly. So there are things like that. Uh, so overcoming inconsistencies of other acts, um, accessibility to make sure the uh, the agricultural department could actually lead and respond in an effective way, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and as I said, again, it's it, it's about acting in an emergency animal disease response only. So uh, it, it's not changing the way that government and industry uh, interact on a day-to-day basis. It's more just in the, in the need of an event. And beyond this, as we mentioned with the, the Minister, this is happening separate to the review of the Biosecurity Act, which is a much bigger piece of work. What are you hoping to see from the consultation going forward now? Because I understand there was consultation done, but it's going back to the drawing board. Oh, we'd expect that the work that had been done in the past does come through when the Biosecurity Act is is reviewed, I understand, early next year. So, um, And we've also been advised that some of the work that's occurred through the review of the Livestock Act will also carry through into the Biosecurity Act. Um, the, the key thing here was really that something needed to be put in place because there were gaps and, as I said, you know, we would have to respond in a way that, thankfully, we're not accustomed to and, and at a speed and in a way that would be unprecedented for pretty much everyone. Um, so waiting for the Biosecurity Act probably wasn't really an option because that's going to involve multiple industries, be a lot more complex, whereas this is really just saying this is about livestock industries. We know that there has been a heightened awareness around risks and if we need to respond in a very decisive way, let's make sure we can do that. Um, so, but yeah, as far as the Biosecurity Act, we'd expect all the, the things that are, are needed through this process will be carried through in the Biosecurity Act, but I suspect that'll take some time because it's going to involve multiple industries and be a lot more complex than the legislative review that's occurred here. So do you, are you confident that these changes made to the Livestock Act will cover the gaps that you found? Yeah, we think what's happened here will enable the government and industry to work effectively together should, we, should the unthinkable happen and we, and we have to deal with an emergency animal disease. 
But, you know, it, it's also important to remember that the key to success of, of any emergency animal disease response or something like that will, will also be really reliant upon the effective working relationship between government and industry. And, you know, that's something that organisations like ourselves will play a key role in uh, on behalf of the cattle, sheep and goat industries. Thanks for your take on that. Hopefully it never happens and it never needs to be acted upon, but um, sounds like you're in favour of the changes the government has made. So thanks for your time today. No worries, Cassie. Livestock SA CEO Travis Tobin there just uh, on the amendments to the Livestock Act that were introduced into State Parliament today. It's 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. With parts of the state extremely wet and affected by these recent heavy rainfalls, delays in many operations have been experienced across the board and the repairs and rebuild of the dog fence is not an exception. Jeff Power, chair of the South Australian Dog Fence Board, says although there have been some delays and breaches due to weather, overall the upgrade is still tracking well. Well, as of a week ago, um, on the 21st of October, we had completed 522 kilometres of the rebuild and we've got, I think it's around 340 kilometres underway and uh, procurement underway for another roughly 350 kilometres. So based on the five-year timeline, are you tracking quite closely to that? we're probably a little bit behind. We've, like at the moment, things have come to a halt because of the weather, and this will be the, the 12th time, I think, uh, that there's a rain event has, has brought work on the fence to a standstill since, I think, May 2019. So we are a little bit behind, but, you know, we're, we're just coming up to the uh, end of the third year of the project. That That, that, that is at the end of December. So we've still got two years to go, and you look at those stats that I've just given you, we're, we're not too bad. In other parts of Australia, New South Wales being one, is experiencing some delays as well, not all weather-related. Other than the weather, is everything else tracking? Yeah, look, everything else is tracking. Um, you know, because of COVID, the, uh, uh, it was difficult to get material. You know, we, we were waiting up to 12 to 14 weeks for material. So, you know, just not because of rain events, but because of COVID, because of uh, Strikes and you know logistics of getting getting vehicles or getting getting trucks out out to the fence because of the weather. All all these things uh, you know they're all challenges. But no, we're we're certainly uh, making progress. Has labour been an issue? Yeah, that 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 is another issue. The contractors at times are short of labour, and of course, if you haven't got labour, you, you can't fulfil your contract. So yeah, that, that has been a problem also. And generally speaking, how is the fence going in terms of doing its job? Oh, look, um, it, it, it's a game changer. I would say we've got five or six properties now that have got sheep back into areas where they couldn't run sheep before. As far as the, the dogs are concerned, you know, 2019, we probably trapped up to 1,000 dogs inside the fence and we're probably back to 50 or 60 this year. So the fence is working and without trapping, and aerial baiting and ground baiting programs have certainly made, made inroads into that population. It's a work in progress. You know, you hit these challenges, as I've just said, but then, uh, yeah, no, we're getting there. You know, with that big flood event, I just can't, I just can't think of the month that probably would have been at the beginning of the year. You know, we, we had a lot of breaches with the fence, but all those repairs have been done. And we, you know, baited very heavily along those areas that had been breached by water. So, you know, I believe while it could have been some dogs get in, but 
you know, be very minimal. Were there any reports of dogs getting in? When... There, there, there would have been the odd track that they, they did see, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I can't give you the stats on that, but the, the, uh, we did get, on, we did get onto, onto it very quickly and uh, with the cooperation of uh, uh, people from Persa, local landholders and contractors, we were able to get all those repairs done. What do you think the turnaround would have been from when that breach occurred to when the fence was repaired? Well, it, it needs to be understood that you can't readily get into some of these areas when uh, you have these flood events. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, you can't go through water, you'd, but I'd say within a month all those areas would have been uh, would have been repaired. Is it sort of more partialist putting in that call or is there a team that goes around and checks? Uh, we've got um, we've got patrolmen that patrol the fence every fortnight and with the information we get from them and uh, local pastoralists, that's when we're able to ascertain if we've got any problems or not. Jeff Power, Chair of the South Australian Dog Fence Board, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. More on weather shortly, but in the meantime, a new trade agreement with India will shortly open up the subcontinent to Australian exporters. With one of the world's fastest growing economies and a population of more than 1.3 billion, India is an enticing market for Australian products, but very high tariffs have been a major sticking point in the negotiations. However, Professor Peter Draper, Executive Director of the Institute for International Trade at the University of Adelaide, says that's about to change. We have now concluded an interim agreement which really covers trade in some goods and it's a fair bit of trade, more ambitious than we had hoped for, I think, at the onset of the latest phase. So that's the interim agreement and that will be going through parliamentary procedures now and the intention is to get it up and running by the end of the year. In the meantime, The phase two negotiations have also commenced and the purpose there really is to widen as well as deepen the range of commitments. Uh, But it's expected that that phase two will last for some time because it contains the trickier issues. What we've ended up with is some new market access, which is good, but depending on the product that either comes into effect on entry into force of the agreement and the tariff could go down to zero or the tariff reduction is phased in over a period um, and the dominant period is from entry into force for seven years uh, and that phase down might not result in a zero tariff at the end of it. It could result in quite a large tariff still. And then for still other products and particularly big field crops, there are some tariff rate quotas built into the agreement. Why has India imposed such high tariffs on agricultural products coming from other places? Right. Well, that's because they have hundreds of millions of peasant farmers, in essence, and protecting them them is a major preoccupation of any trade minister. What surprised many people in the context of this latest phase of the negotiations is what seems to be a new attitude on the part of the senior echelons of the Indian trade policy establishments who seem very keen now to use free trade agreements as a way of reforming the Indian economy. You mentioned agreements, plural. Does that mean that India is looking to other countries as well as Australia for potential trading partners? Exactly. Uh, So they've concluded recently a free trade agreement with the United Arab Emirates. They're in negotiations with the European Union, Canada and the UK. What 
that goes to show is that by landing this deal now, we will have a window of preferential access into the EU market, that, sorry, the Indian market that some of our major competitors won't. How does this play out in relation to Australia's trade relationship with China? Will it make any difference to that? I think in the medium term it will, and potentially in the short term as well. So if one thinks of products like wine, which were largely locked out of the Chinese market, or perhaps another South Australian interest, which would be rock lobster, both are covered under this agreement and will get substantial new market access. So I think in, in that context where China, through its trade actions against Australia, has excluded a range of products from the Chinese market, India is opening up on the other side. So wine, rock lobster, barley is another product that comes to mind. And that list of market access will widen and hopefully deepen as the phase two agreement takes place. Professor Peter Draper, Executive Director for the Institute of International Trade at the University of Adelaide, speaking with Karen Hunt. Now, as South Australia starts to thaw out, Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology has more info. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. What are you seeing on the charts? Yeah, look, we're going to go into a bit of a a warming and drying trend, so a little bit of um, relief from some of the rainfall and those cold temperatures that we did see earlier in the week. We are still in a cooler southwesterly airstream at the moment with a um, high-pressure system starting to develop southwest on the bite. We have seen a little bit of light shower activity around this morning. Not too much in the gauges, though, mostly below sort of a millimetre pushing up the the Gulf Coast through there and a little bit around the, the mid-north. But compared to some of the rainfall that we have seen, not much on the cards for the remainder of today. Um, Should be really easing back during this afternoon and evening period. We'll really see those showers contracting really just to our far southern coast by Friday. We are looking at a dry weekend as that high-pressure system moves out into the Tasman Sea. So looking at seeing some um, some warmer air getting, um, drawn in from the, the north of the country there as well. So warmer and drier weekend coming up, and, but that is ahead of our next system that will start to come into the far west on Monday. So looking at more showers and thunderstorms returning to the western parts of the state on Monday and then we'll get to see that one move across um, more broadly on Tuesday and Wednesday before starting to contract out towards the end of the week through there. Um, We will be monitoring that one, especially for some gusty thunderstorms with that system coming through. Maybe this one's not looking quite as wet as some of the other ones we have seen, but it is still a few days out, so we will be monitoring that one as it comes through. But yeah, there will be another system coming through, but a little bit of relief in sight with that drier um, and warmer conditions coming through on the weekend throughout the state and looking at some of those temperatures actually getting quite hot as we head into early parts of the week. Even though the rainfall has um, really settled down today, we do still have that flood warning out for the Light and Wakefield rivers. So we have obviously had that significant rainfall over the last few days. So we've got those creek and um, river rises across the Light and Wakefield and Gilbert rivers. Those levels have peaked now, but they do remain elevated across the lower reaches of the Light and Wakefield rivers. So um, we'll be monitoring that, but we do still have that out at the moment 
as well as the SES has various um, flood advices and a flood watch. So stay up to date with the warnings on both of our websites through there. And just having a look at some of the rainfall that we are expecting up until midnight Monday. Not too much, actually. Generally, for the remainder of this week, we are looking at less than two millimetres over the southern agricultural area and southern parts of the Flinders district. We could see those totals getting to two to five millimetres about parts of the Mount Lofty Ranges and our northern Gulf Coast. Generally, though, less than a millimetre about the south of the pastoral districts and the northern agricultural area. We are looking at that dry weekend throughout the state. And then maybe with that system coming in out on the west, we're looking at some totals of two to five millimetres moving across the western parts on Monday. With those thunderstorms, they could be seeing totals of five to 15 millimetres. Still a bit of uncertainty, but we'll watch this space for that next change, Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Jenny Horvat there from the Bureau of Meteorology. Some warmer weather on the way, I'm sure, is very welcome for a lot of people. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy. The overnight temperatures will fall to between 9 and 12 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid-20s. The lower western will be cloudy. Overnight, it's getting down to 6 to 9 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low 20s tomorrow. I'm Cassie Health. There's more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12 You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. It's great to have your company today. After years of delays, the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry has released the National Carp Control Plan. And uh, it, this is the plan that will determine whether or not a carp herpes virus should be released into Australian waterways. What it seemed to me from this report was that it, it did seem to have some evidence that using this virus would be effective if all we were thinking about is focusing on reducing carp numbers. Um, but of course, we've always got to think about the wider impacts of introducing these sort of species as well. So, what do you make of this possibility that the, the carp virus could be, carp herpes virus, could be released into the waterways? There's, it's only just been released, so we haven't had much time to take a look at it, but I'll bring you some more details from the Agriculture Minister soon. You can text me on 0467922891 or phone 1300222891. There's been some exhaustive science done on that. I'll have more in the next 10 minutes or so. Also, the Murray Darling Basin Authority has visited the Coorong. I'll take a look at what they're focusing on, but for now, Matt Coleman has the latest in news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, South Australia's Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People has called for a reset on plans to introduce a fly-in, fly-out mental health service to the APY lands. The ABC has seen a draft proposal that would see workers fly from Adelaide every fortnight to care for children. It would replace two workers who've lived and worked in the community for more than a decade. A man who stabbed and killed another man in Adelaide's northern suburbs has been found not guilty of murder due to mental incompetence. Nathan Clark was found dead and lying in a pool of blood at a housing estate in Elizabeth in 2019. Supreme Court Justice Kevin Nicholson has found William Robert Delaney killed the 40-year-old but found him not guilty of murder due to mental incompetence. And healthcare workers will now have access to cheaper parking under a state government initiative. Thousands of people who hold permits will be able to park for $2.50 a day while those without to be able to catch public transport for free. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There. Now, as I was saying, the much-delayed National Carp Control Plan has been publicly released today. It calls for more research and planning before the release of a carp herpes virus. The plan is the largest feasibility assessment of a biological agent in Australia, involving more than 11 national and international research institutions and over 40 research scientists across six years. Minister for Agriculture Murray Watt spoke with Warwick Long a short time ago about the plan that has just been released. Yeah, look, we're still working our way through this as well. We've only received um, this document uh, for the first time ourselves today and it's over 4,000 pages altogether, so it'll take a little bit of time to work its way through. But my observation uh, from a quick read of the paper was that it does suggest that there is research um, that shows that using uh, that virus would be an effective control measure for carp. But of course, we've got to think about the wider impacts of introducing that kind of a virus more widely as well. It seemed to me that the recommendations were that you could consider using it in a more targeted manner rather than just going and plonking it into every river system right around the country. Um, But there's still some work to be done here. We've got to get the National Biosecurity Committee, which includes the most senior biosecurity people from the federal and state governments to have a good look at this now as well. Um, But I think it is a really solid piece of work based on really good evidence. So I think it's a really helpful contribution to what's been a very challenging issue for a long time. Yeah, so it sounds like you support the idea of more research. You're not taking the koi herpes virus off the table. No, I mean, as I say, I think we've still got to take a bit of time to work out what way through this report. So I'm not really in a position to give you a categorical answer at this point in time. But um, what what it seemed to me from this report was that it, it did seem to have some evidence that using this virus would be effective if all we were thinking about is focusing on reducing carp numbers. Um, but of course, we've always got to think about the wider impacts of introducing these sort of species as well. So it may be that there's a bit more research needed into that before we go uh, following it holus bolus. Minister for Agriculture Murray Watt speaking there with Warwick Long as he he said it has only just been released so there's a bit to go through before you can really dissect what that report does say. But do you think that it's a a good idea uh, that the uh, uh, carp herpes virus be released? There's been a lot of science go into it. You can text me on 0467922891 or phone 1300222891. While we're talking about the river system, uh, it's uh, in full flood at the moment in many parts across the east coast of Australia and it is heading to South Australia. Uh, Flood meetings are being held in the Riverland this week. Reporter Sophie Landau was at the Renmark meeting last night. She can explain what they're focusing on. Good afternoon. Oh, hi, Cassie. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. So what are the purpose of these meetings? Yes, yeah, so really the SES is uh, bringing the community together to host these information sessions around the Riverland. As you said, I was at the one at Renmark last night. Um, there's going to be more in Cobdogla, Barry today and throughout the rest of the river communities over the coming weeks. But really it's about bringing people together to all be in one place and hear from these state bodies, bring the most up-to-date information, the most up-to-date advice and also uh, take their questions on all sorts of things they might have ranging from how to sandbag to um, whether their roads around their town will start becoming inundated and also things like you know what to do if if their home is affected so some some of the people there last night we had housing SA and um, uh, obviously the SAS um, PERSA all, all of the many many state bodies there to to field people's questions and I guess 
prepare them for the worst case scenario. At this stage, we are still, um, the, the predictions are that we've got 135 gigalitres per day coming through by early December. The SES is just saying, look, we just want to be prepared. We just want uh, everyone to sort of have the knowledge and, you know, just in case, really. And there could be more information out this afternoon as well. What's the mood been like at these meetings? How are locals feeling? Well, obviously people are unsure still. There's a lot of unknowns, I guess, in terms of how their um, how their homes might be impacted or how their, their towns might be impacted at this stage. Um, but the the advice right now is to to really continue looking at those flood mapping resources that are available online for people to see check out if their houses are um in in those areas that could be impacted and if so then you know it's not a bad idea to start taking some action start looking at uh sandbagging you know obviously not taking more than you need they really honed that um that point through last night that it's important for us to share as a community and really help each other out. But I think last night was also just, you know, there was a sense of coming together as well. People were um, rallying around each other, you know, supporting each other in the queries that they asked. So what's been the big takeaway then? I think the biggest takeaway is that you can never be too prepared. Um, do I need to start thinking about maybe raising some things off of the floor? Do I need to start thinking about putting some sandbags down? And I guess that was probably my biggest takeaway message from last night was that it's, yeah, it's okay to be prepared. And, you know, also that note about helping your neighbours. If you've brought the information home for yourself tonight, share it with your neighbours, share it with your sports club, with your community, and just really help to get all of those messages out there. And so we can, you know, work together as, as the weeks continue. Did they detail which areas would be most affected, where the focus is? Yes, so it is still those low-lying areas around Loxton, around Blanchetown. Um, They are expecting to experience some more inundation with the waters. But I guess the the, the geography of, of our area along the river is varied. It's it's very different along all the different areas, um, you know, with the with the levee banks and the floodplains. And actually, that, that does remind me as well, there was quite a bit of talk about the levee banks at the meeting last night. Um, you know, many of the questions to, to the services and uh, to the council were around the state of the levee banks. And we heard last night that those works are, you know, currently underway and, and, being, and being worked on. And some of those faults in the levee banks are being looked at and being serviced. Uh, council last night told us that but, you know, once those works have been completed, they're expecting that the levy banks will be able to hold 200 gigalitres per day. So, um, you know, that was new information and I think that would put a lot of people at ease as well. Was there any comparison made with previous floods that people might remember? I think the the comparison is that, you know, these waters coming through, we haven't seen the likes of in 50 years. So that's the, the floods that the Riverland region saw in the 70s. Um, and uh, there have been no comparisons really of yet to the 1956 flood, which I'm sure a lot of people around the state have uh, now become familiar with. But we can compare it to those levels that, that we did see in the 70s. And uh, many, many people in our community 
community remember that time clear as day and can say, okay, I remember what happened in the 70s. I can I can start looking at where I am in the town and think about, okay, how might this impact me and, and go from there. Hopefully there have been enough new uh, infrastructure projects and things that, that people won't see damage to their places. But as you said, the community is being encouraged to come together and, and work together to, to make sure that this is uh, has, a, has the least amount of impact as possible. So I'll let you go. I know you've got to get to more meetings this afternoon and uh, there'll be more updates through the day on ABC Local Radio. Thanks so much for your time today, Sophie. Thanks, Cass. So, so there's Sophie Landau there in the Riverland and there'll be more meetings this week. It's 20 minutes to one. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. With the rivers, it seems with all this heavy rain about, there's been a fair few flood watch and act alerts issued around the state. But for Wandera locals, the risk of the Broughton River flooding is posing a threat to their crops and causing some concern, although it has now been downgraded from a watch and act to a flood advice. Wandera farmer Neville Hunt says although people are taking precautions, it's about monitoring the situation closely. Well, the river's actually dropped half a metre at Ashanti's Bridge, which is probably good news for a lot of people. But there's still going to be a lot of water still flowing over west of the highway. And, yeah, it's just, it'll just spread out. It's spreading very slowly this year. Everyone in the area has done all their preparation and lifted fences and moved livestock. I think there's a couple of houses that might have been sandbagged. In terms of the crops in the area, do you see this posing a problem, um, ruining, damaging, affecting any of those? just have to wait and see. There's definitely going to be some effect. Crops are nearly ripe in the district and want to be harvested soon, so that's going to be a problem getting on the paddocks. Yeah, it's just a matter of wait and see the next day or two how much is affected, crops flattened and that sort of thing. No, it's pretty hard to tell at this stage. It might lose a little bit this year, but the benefits will be in the subsoil moisture the next two or three years. They won't be wiped out altogether, but um, yeah, it'll be hard to harvest some of them if they're flattened. So the Flood Watch and Act message has been issued for Wandera. What are locals doing at the moment? Are they just continuously watching and just waiting and still putting those precautions in place, ready for the situation to change at any minute? Yeah, that's right. Like I said, all, all the preparation's been done. All we can do now is just, um, yeah, watch and monitor it and see what happens. There's always some concern locally, a bit of anxiety, but I was talking to a few people this morning and they're all relieved to hear that the river dropped half a metre up at the bridge. All, all the locals out here, we're all pretty used to it and look forward to a good flood, to be honest. It's sort of exciting and we get the benefits of the following years. Everyone has a little bit of anxiety at times, but um, yeah, that's all. And that's more around crops being damaged. Is that what it is, or is it more yeah, about the cleanup? Yeah. Uh, yeah, both. More worried about because we, some people have started harvest and the rest are pretty close, and everyone wants to be harvested. And the ground's so wet and it's got to dry out, and yeah, that's causing a bit of anxiety. That was Wandera farmer Neville Hunt, and Lower Broughton farmer Wayne Young gives the update from his end. Uh, to us, it's nothing but negatives, really. There's not a lot of positives for us, but we're going to lose a lot of a lot of feed, a lot of dry feed that the flood would probably just flatten and put silt over top of it. So we're going to end up with a lot less feed than we had. But other than that, it's just uh, like any other normal flood. We just keep having a look around all the time and seeing seeing what's going on and and see if we can get dry sheep shear tomorrow. <laughs> so at, at the moment, we're, we're not shearing because we've run out of dry sheep. Yeah. Have you had to put any precautions in place around your property? Not really any precautions, but yes, we did 
we were lucky, we, we were shearing, so we had all the sheep out, where normally when a flood comes like this, we have to go out and get all the sheep in and that sort of thing, because it all goes underwater. So yes, so we, we have had to do that, but, but we already had it done because we're shearing, yeah. So generally speaking, you're not concerned about the situation at the moment? No, not at the moment. If if there's more coming behind, more water coming behind this, or more rains coming behind that, that that's when water builds on top of other water, sort of thing, and then it starts to get fairly high. But at the moment, it's it's not of any concern. No. Now I don't know. I'm standing on the on the bridge that's not finished yet at the moment, and I'm seeing all these little floaties, little little sticks and things floating down. So it means it's still rising here. But how much is going to rise and where it's, what it's going to come to, I, I don't know. Lower Broughton farmer Wayne Young ending that report by Dimitri Panagiotaris. A few rivers in that part of the world have needed a bit of a watch lately. Uh, hopefully the uh, the flooding will reduce as this weather warms up. I was talking about the carp virus and I've had a few texts come in. Uh, Roger from Hallett Cove is focusing on with the uh, the River Murray flooding, uh, the increase in yabby number size. So a bit of a glass half full there, Roger, from Hallett Cove. Uh, John is asking, can the carp virus be released in the Torrens River first at the lower end? It's small and can be more controlled. Um, Steph's saying no point using on carp if it, affects, if it affects one other species of native fish. A bit concerning the announcement before they've done a complete assessment on native fish. I don't know if they have done, I think they've done a fair bit of work on fish species. It's just that this is a 4,000 page document that they are trying to get their heads around before they really make decisions on which way to go with it. Uh, some more uh, texts. Uh, Deb says that carp virus sounds pretty scary. How can it be guaranteed that other fish won't be affected and killed off too? Certainly some of the questions that have been asked uh, along the way with this. So when we know what the government makes of this report, you can read this report as well. It is up online at the uh, Federal Department of Agriculture's website as well if you uh, would like to uh, take a look at that as well. But while we're talking about the River Murray, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin Chief Executive Andrew McConville is touring the Lower Lakes, Murray Mouth and Coorong region this week. Just a, a bit of a, a watching briefer, a, a visit to, to see how things are going. It, it's clearly a, an area of interest at the moment with all the water that's coming down and he can let us know what he's been looking at through the week. Good afternoon. Well, you're right about the weather. It's been it's been pretty blowy and pretty cold. But we've been down for a couple of days uh, in Murray Bridge. We started with Murray Bridge and then to Maipalonga where we visited with a couple of dairy farmers and, and some of the local uh, sort of fruit and uh, veg producers up there. I've been down to Parker Point, to Ralcan, uh, off to the barrages today in Goolwa um, and had a good look at the Coorong yesterday uh, as well. So it's really about just getting out and listening. Obviously, managing water is complex. As you say, there's a lot of it about at the moment. So myself and a couple of the team and also the Commonwealth Environmental Water Office and the Federal Department, uh, we've been just getting out and, and listening and hearing what people have to say. So is that the main purpose of the, the trip? Yeah, look, the purpose is, is, is really to, to listen and understand you know, how people are feeling about where, where the river is at at the moment. Obviously, there is a lot of water in the system, but sure as eggs, that will change. And uh, you know, how are people seeing the role of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan? We are four years out from a review, uh, the first review of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in 2026. And you know, we need to make sure that we're really pushing hard for, for execution of the plan as it is currently drafted, and that's something that you know we are 
very committed to and, and we need to understand from communities as to you know what's working and what's not. In the Lower Lakes and uh, Murray Mouth region, the Naranjiri people are the traditional owners of that land and they were the first Indigenous group given control over the environmental flows that go into a particular region. That was in 2016. How is that going and what has that delivered? Yeah, look, we spent a lot of time with the Naranjiri people yesterday and it was was really fabulous. Um, they're doing some amazing work working with, with the state government in, in terms of the, the Coorong project and, and really understanding Know, what needs to happen to keep the, the, the Coorong healthy. It's an incredibly important cultural area for the Naranjiri people and, and you know, self-determination is, is what they're all about. So being able to, to understand you know, the importance of cultural flows for them, understanding what, what's meant by cultural flows is, is really important and how they've been able to, to partner with the government to understand you know, what, what a healthy Coorong looks like. You know, there are challenges there in the Coorong and uh, it's about working with the state government, working with the federal government to, to do what we can to keep the Coorong as healthy as we can, particularly the, um, you know, the bottom half of the Coorong. And, and so being able to spend some time, get out and literally touch and feel and smell um, with the Naranjiri people yesterday was just a, a real eye-opener. And I think you know, the way in which um, governments have worked with the Naranjiri people, I think, sort of sets the bar, if you like, in terms of how... Uh, First Nations people and you know, different stakeholder groups can can work together, and you know, I think at the end of the day we all share the same the same objective to to you know have a, a really healthy Coorong, and um, you know we can learn an awful lot from uh, the Naranjiri people in terms of you know their custodianship of, of that really important area for, for thousands of years, and I think yesterday yeah, really opened my eyes to just how significant the area is for the Naranjiri people and, and how important it is that we're able to work with them. From speaking to people in that part of the world, have they raised concerns or questions regarding the possibility of buybacks? Oh, look, there's certainly a lot of interest, Cassandra, in terms of you know the, the, the position of, of, of the federal government. And you know, from the MDBA's perspective, you know, the 450 year leaders that, that's been talked about a lot has always been an important part of the Basin Plan. Now, ultimately, how that's achieved is is a matter for you know governments working with basin communities. But you know from where I sit as the MDBI, it, it's really about making sure that we can see those full outcomes of the plan um, delivered. To your question on on buybacks, again, I mean it is it is a decision for for governments as to how you know they will go about uh, recovering that water. But the federal minister has has made it very clear that everything, including you know, uh, buybacks are on on the table, but also a range of other options as well in in terms of sort of infrastructure programs, on-farm, off-farm efficiency measures. So, you know, all of those things will be looked at as we also want to see progress on sort of, uh, you know, the projects that have been committed to under the the sustainable diversion um, commitments, you know, supply and constraints measures. It's important to recognise, I think, Cassandra, that we've come a very long way. You know, 2,100 gigalitres of water has been recovered and that's an amazing achievement when you look at similar river systems around the world that haven't been able to achieve that. But we're in the last mile now and, and the last mile is always harder than the first. So we want to see it delivered in full in order to, to be able to then say, well, what do we need to do next? Murray Darling Basin Chief Executive Andrew McConville speaking there after a week spent chatting to people around the Lower Lakes Kurong and Murray Mouth region. It's nine minutes to one. Weeknights from seven. Peter Gers. Donald Fraser. 
I'm really his guest. Hello, Donald Fraser. Hello, how are you? I originally come from Annabella. You know, they still call it Annabella, don't they? Later, they named uh, uh, Pukaja community. What does Pukaja mean, Donald? Uh, it should have been sensitive, but they, the men have uh, okayed the people to call Pukaja. Hmm. Peter Gers on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. This has had a wonderful trip around the north of the state, around the AP Wildlands. Well worth a listen there. And uh, uh, I just got a text in with someone commenting on how formal that interview was. Someone calling me Cassandra, which is my full name, but uh, not many people call me Cassandra. Thanks for that. Uh, Mark's also texted in to say, get rid of the carp. What about the other ferals that just infest Australia wide? Uh, Boars, foxes, cats, dogs, deer, goat, buffalo. There are a lot of programs that are dealing with those. We cover them regularly, Mike, but they are all causing issues and well worth the effort being put into them. Thanks so much for your text. Finally today, we've been talking about rivers and floods and all the water, but we know in this land of ours you do get your droughts and flooding rains and a resource is now available, a new resource for farmers to help them deal with the aftermath of a bushfire. Recovering After a Farm Fire is a free interactive self-help resource that's been put together by clinical psychologist Dr Kate Gunn. She sets up the program, which can be found on the iFarmWell website, with the help of 16 farmers from across South Australia. Now, this would be relevant to anyone, whether you live in the Adelaide Hills or perhaps the Peninsula, wherever you are in this state. Ms Gunn says that she hopes that it can provide people Australia-wide with the support and information they need to help them process and recover after a bushfire. Yeah, so we spoke to farmers um, from the Adelaide Hills, um, from around Port Lincoln, KI, the Mid-North and a few from interstate as well. And what they did is tell us about their experiences and how they felt that being a farmer um, kind of made their experience of a fire a bit different to other people who might be in a rural community. And perhaps the best thing they told us um, was what they did to help themselves cope in the aftermath of a fire. So then we were able to take all of those practical tips from the lived experience of farmers and combine them with evidence-based psychological strategies that we know um, help people in these sorts of circumstances. And then we went back to the farmers again and said, you know, have we got the balance right of your stories and tips with the the strategies? And and we sort of went back and forth until we developed a resource that we felt uh, was, you know, engaging and, and met their needs. How important is it to have that first-hand experience when building a resource like this one? Yeah, I think um, it certainly makes it um, more interesting. And the feedback we've had so far is that other farmers, you know, they really love learning from the experiences of, of, farm, of farmers. So, yes, I think uh, it makes it real and practical. And But having said that, it is also really important to um, have the evidence-based strategies that, um, you know, are based on lots of research that over the years that has shown help people in these circumstances. So we're quite pleased. We think we've got the balance right. So the resource um, is online. So how does it? Uh, how is it laid out if someone goes um, to this online and, and is looking for information? Yeah, so they just need to go to the iFarmWell website and then in, you can go to other initiatives and it says the bushfire module there. So you click on that and you punch in your name and email and a few things. And the reason that we ask people to register is because then the information that you put into the site then tailors it to meet your needs. So, and it also means you can go away and come back and look at look at the answers that you've put in before. So, 
Yeah, so you, you don't have to do it in one sitting. So some people say it takes them about half an hour to work through all the information. Others are saying an hour. But uh, you, if you've only got 10 minutes, you can jump on and, and start it and then it'll save where you're up to and you can come back to it later. So, yeah, it's it's very practical and, and, you know, it's useful for people who have experienced a fire to help them kind of heal and work through what they've experienced. But it might also be useful to people who haven't experienced a fire but are just curious about what what that might look like and, you know, and then it might prepare them in case they were to experience something like that in the future. What are some of those practical ideas or um, coping strategies did, did farmers come up with? So um, one of the things that a lot of men in particular said was that, you know, in the aftermath of the fire, they just worked, worked, worked. You know, they had to had stock they had to contain and, and lots of um, hazards they had to address. But with hindsight, what they, what they generally say is that they realised that they should have treated it more like a marathon than a sprint. And, you know, often they burnt themselves out. One of the farmers we worked with who's actually got a video within the module talked about having a panic attack um, because he worked for four days straight without having sleep and eat and eating and those sort of things. So that's one example. You do need to pace yourself a bit. Um, they also talked about if you have the option, not destroying your own livestock because like many people said that having to do that stayed with them for a really long time and they wish they hadn't they wish they'd accepted help and, and let other people do that. And another thing that people talked quite a lot about was sort of harbouring anger um, after the fire for a really long time. And, you know, it's quite easy for your mind to get stuck on, oh, this shouldn't have happened and this wasn't fair and these authorities did this stuff wrong. And But again, down the track, uh, what the farmer said to us was, you know, they wish they hadn't wasted so much negative energy focusing on all that stuff. It kind of made them difficult people to be around and so in the module we've got some practical strategies on how you can sort of park that anger and shift your focus to things that are going to actually make your life better and and stop wasting energy on on those things that you know you really probably can't change. What are you hoping farmers can take from this moving forward? Yeah look what we hope is that um, for farmers who have experienced something like this it can help them heal and and realise that you know, their experiences are, are probably no different to anyone else's. And so we hope hope that it helps people deal with the past hurt. But also in dealing with that, it can actually prepare you to face future challenges, um, you know, more more easily. So we think it's a really good preventative um, strategy as well to help people get in the right frame of mind so that if they were faced with something like this again, you know, their survival brain wouldn't kick in quite so quickly. Um, They might be able to remain calm and make those important um, good decisions, you know, a little bit more effectively. Clinical psychologist Dr Kate Gunn speaking with Brooke Nindoff there. Some very important information to help people recover after a fire. It's not something that's particularly on people's minds at the moment, but with all this fuel that's building up, there is still that very real risk through summer in this state. So worth a a listen or a watch if you uh, are interested. That's all we have time for, but Carolyn Winter has more on the program this afternoon on 8 on Radio Adelaide and uh, across South Australia. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. That's good. Well, we're going to harness the degrees of separation for South Australians because we need someone in the US, in Minneapolis, to take a photo for a guest that we're going to be speaking to whose art is going to be featured on a huge billboard over there. Wow, harness the people power. Exactly. Keep listening to ABC Radio. It's coming up to one o'clock. 
There are so many ways to keep informed. State heritage listing does provide some important protection. It doesn't prevent any development on the parkland. Leading news and current affairs. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.